1: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we'll talk about video games, deep friendship, and L.A., all things that animate Gabrielle Zevin's novel Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, which draws its title from what Zevin calls one of the bleakest speeches in all of Shakespeare, as Macbeth contemplates life's monotony and meaninglessness. But to one of the novel's characters, the soliloquy is hopeful and describes the essence of a video game, The idea that if you keep playing, you could win. No loss is permanent, because nothing is permanent ever. Writer Gabrielle Zevin joins us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Novelist Gabrielle Zevin grew up playing late 80s video games like King's Quest IV and Space Quest III, And it's their intricate worlds that call to mind her most recent novel, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. It's about three college students who make video games together, their complicated friendship, and how it informs the games they create. The novel came out last summer and topped dozens of year-end best-of lists. Gabrielle Zevin joins me now. Welcome to Forum. Thank you for having me. Really glad to have you. Um, This might be kind of a big question, but just right off the bat, what made you want to write about video games or, or make them a key storytelling piece?
2: You know, it's interesting. The first generation of people to play video games as children were born in the late 1970s and early 80s. We call them the Oregon Trail generation because they yes. were likely to have played the computer game Oregon Trail, probably in a computer lab in some school somewhere. <laughs> and it just occurred to me that, you know, there was a whole generation of people, myself among them, who had grown up with uh, video game storytelling as a primary uh, storytelling uh piece of their their lives and and of their culture. And, And so I just thought it would be interesting to look at people like that who saw their lives and their relationships through the lens of having played video games.
1: Was there a particular game like that for you?
2: Well, my dad is a computer programmer. And so the first video games I ever played were games that just came preloaded on a computer he brought from work. You know, so in a way, I just played whatever was there. And I do remember that video games solved a very particular problem for me, which is that I was an only child. And so they gave me company. But in terms of uh, a very particular game, uh, you know, Right when I started the book, there was this game called Gold Rush that was about people going to, you know, out West to find gold, you know, and in 2018, 2017, I wanted to track down this game, but you really couldn't because video games can be sort of lost forever. So even if you found the game again, it would have to have been updated, you know, because it's tied to a particular hardware at a particular time and there isn't much sort of uh, video game conservation as of yet there's some but not a ton and so I could not find that game and it just occurred to me in almost a panic that these things that had been important storytelling experiences for me alongside novels I mean I was an English major at Harvard um, you know could be lost forever so I mean games like that like silly little games that you just want to to revisit you know um, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, one of the characters in Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow says, there is no artist more empathetic than the game designer. And and it seems like you believe that too. Well, first of all, that game designers are unquestionably artists. Mm. (laughs) Why do you feel that way, if you do?
2: Um, Well, I think, you know, it's funny, people get very fussy about the term artist, you know, what that means. (laughs) And but to me, an artist is just somebody who tries to impose order on our chaotic universe. You know, I think that's what art is, you know, it's kind of making some making sense of, you know, our brief time on planet Earth. And so I know a video game designer very much does that. It's the same thing. But also, I mean, what really intrigued me about video games was that they sit at the intersection of art and technology, you know, and if you look at something like Pong, like the earliest video game most people think of. It's literally two lines and two circles. And what does that look like except kind of like grand minimalism, you know? And and if you kind of look at the history of video games, it's so easy to see both the history of technology and how much we've advanced and really a, a history of of the graphics themselves and you can see, and and especially if you look at like indie games and games that are being made today, you have things that have kind of, you know, cinema quality graphics, like something like The Last of Us, you know, yes. or you have all these very like artistic games that are, you know, a game like Journey or something like that, which is very, again, sort of this beautiful minimalism. You know, there's a particular uh, coffee table book I like called Indie Games. And I think the author's name is like Bonte V. or something like that. And, you know, it just really, when you turn through this book, what you notice is that oh right video games are completely art <laughs> you know <laughs> arts that art that has incredible challenges um but you also asked me about uh, why video game designers are are empathetic or if yes. they are yes. and i think that's because You know, even as a novelist, I am thinking about a reader ultimately, but they don't have to actively participate in it. You know, so I think a video game designer is constantly thinking about the person who's going to play the game and how they're going to experience it. They have to sort of imagine this player all of the time. And so I think, you know, it's a profoundly empathetic thing. You know, a sort of side point is, you know, sometimes people will ask me, you know, are, are video game designers like novelists, you know? And I always think to myself, in a way, yes, we're very similar, if, as long as you understand that programming itself is a kind of language, and video games are a way to give somebody a message, you know, and so in that sense, the jobs we do are quite, quite similar.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a really good way of describing it. Uh, uh, you're inspiring me to ask our listeners, if, you know, video games played a special role in their lives, and, and what your favorite video games listeners are from the late 80s or early 90s, which is... <laughs> When this book is set, well, it actually spans quite a, a long period of time, 30 years, but, um, yeah. but those games are kind of the heart of it. Um, you can join the conversation by emailing forum at kqed.org, finding us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED forum, or by calling 866-733-6786. Again, we're talking with Gabrielle Zevin, and uh, yeah, tell us what your favorite video game from the 80s or 90s was and why, and whether what Zevin is saying about video games, uh, video game designers, and more resonate with you. Um, Actually, we did get quite a few comments before this show from people who were excited (laughs) that we were going to talk to you and who have read this book. So Erica writes, I'm curious to know more about the author's own experience with developing games. Did she learn how to do many of the challenging coding and other things that her characters do? Or did she learn about that from talking to others? I feel like I understood it so well from her descriptions.
2: Um, you know, that's an interesting question. I'm a novelist, not a video game designer, but both my parents worked in computers. My dad was a computer pro- programmer and my mother worked in marketing. Um and and basically, I just grew up as a child of IBM and Computers were in my life all the time, and I had a really healthy, I guess, fluency with them and a lack of fear around them. And my dad would have loved for me to have gone into computers also. And I keep joking with him that this is the closest he's ever going to get. <laughs> and he seems to have made peace with that as an outcome, you know. But no, I mean, I'm not a video game designer. Um, luckily, you know there's so much access to information these days that i would i was kind of able to research uh this in a very granular way and across about 5 years you know so so in a sense like i'm hoping to uh give a verisimilitude about about game design but i think in a way the book is very much about just the creative process generally. And there are ways in which making a film or making a book or anything like that are very similar. So a lot of those aspects of it, this kind of collaborative aspects are things that I have drawn from like my own work and life. So I think the combination of those two things, which is just kind of like painstaking, ugly research, you know, being born to computer people and <laughs> um, an and experience of a career in the arts and with its sort of successes and failures are the things that kind of make people... You know, feel like uh, the descriptions have verisimilitude,
1: yeah. So you didn't actually code your yourself for this. The I program
2: one... a little, you know, oh, but not you do, like, <laughs> but not like not like in a way that is useful to anything, you know <laughs> and 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 I think, like if you think about the people that are making top games today, um, you know, a lot of them are not coders uh, necessarily. They are storytellers and think of themselves that way, you know. And so, um, I think that is something I was aware of as I was working too.
1: Yeah, well, you know, it is funny. And I think it's very cool that one of the games that you have one of your characters in the book, create Emily Blaster, which, in essence, you created, right? Actually got made into a game that we can all play in real life. It must have been really fun to to play a, a game that you dreamed up for a character.
2: Um well many experiences in this book have been or that I've had with this book have been quite surreal and that I've met several people that I either like based characters kind of near or had researched or things that were in the book I ended up encountering in real life. And so it's been a very strange thing. But one of the most surreal was somebody making Emily Blaster, you know, and I think that was part of my publisher's like promotional plan from very early on, you know, that it would be cool to to do that. Um, and I think Penguin Random House kind of somehow controls like like the Emily Dickinson website or something like that. <laughs> so there was a lot of kind of corporate synergy to making that happen. But yeah. I mean, it was, it was very cool that they, that, that, that happened and that people could do that i think it kind of it gives it gave the whole thing um the experience of the book and the existence of that game gave the whole thing a sort of like immersive quality you know that was was very cool for for the readers of it you know but it, it is sort of silly like a guy made this that is not me and but yet people see it on my website and even though it clearly says it's programmed by this other guy um You know, people will be like, oh, it's so cool. She programmed that game like herself. I'm like, no, I I didn't. I'm sorry to disavow you, but I, But I, I invented it, but I did not program this game, you know.
1: Well, but it's infused with you, it seems like, because you have an Emily Dickinson poem as your book's epigraph. And also, well, can you describe the game a little bit like what you do in Emily Blaster to try to win?
2: I mean, effectually, it's one of the two games my character Sadie Green makes when she is in the Advanced Games Seminar at MIT. And so uh, I think it's a game that she's sort of left to the last minute to make. She hasn't given herself a ton of time. So it needs to be fairly simple. So she's drawing heavily on sort of uh, like games like math Blaster, which is a game I had played when I was a kid, you know, it's where you kind of shot, uh, like sums, like numbers would go through the air and you shot sums and that kind of thing. And so it kind of works like that. You are, you're holding a quill and as the, as lines from, you know, Emily Dickinson come down, you have to shoot them in the right order and create a uh, wonderful, you know, Emily Dickinson's poems, basically.
1: And it is not easy. I tried playing it, my producer, Susie Britton, uh, who produced this show also became completely addicted to trying to get <laughs> did you to play get it? it I have it? to
2: ask, did you play on a desktop or did you play on a phone?
1: I played on a desktop. Actually. Well, I think
2: it's better on the desktop actually, but it's easier on the phone. Oh so. that's good
1: to know because I was really bad at it.
2: It takes, you have to, I mean, I will say that the main things for playing, if anybody goes to play Emily Blaster and you would like tips, the main things are you have to not panic when all the poems start falling at you. You have to just basically keep your wits about you and try to really remember what the poem is before you go in. Those are, <laughs> those are the tips. And just one last thing, my yeah. publisher did actually have a tournament with booksellers, so they competed too. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs>
1: we're, we're talking with Gabrielle Zevin about video games about tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And we'll have more with her and with you after. After the break, you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
1: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Gabrielle Zevin, author of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. It's about video games, friendship, art, and empathy, and what it means to collaborate. And you, our listeners, can join the conversation. Have you read Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow? What did you think? Uh, just what Gabrielle Zevin has been saying about video games, gaming culture, and so on resonate with you. You can join us by emailing forum at kqed.org, finding us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED forum, calling 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Let me go to Jacob in Alameda. Hi, Jacob.
3: Hey, everybody. Um, this isn't really a question. I just want to say that I recently took a chance on the book at my local library and read it. Uh, just finished it within the last couple of days and loved it. Um, definitely, like, the stories and the lives that you uh, tell about in this were very compelling and lots of little gems in there. But in particular, within that, I love Solution and Ichigo, I think, is the main main game in that. You yep. have a real gift for game ideas. I found myself, I want to play those games. Like maybe <laughs> one day you can do some partnership. But all in all, so masterful. Thank you so much for bringing that to our world.
2: Oh, Jacob, thank you. Thank you so much, Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> but Jason, it was Jason, I think. Was it Jason or Jacob? Jacob. 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 Okay.
1: Yeah, Jacob, thanks for the comment. Do you Have you had other people say that to you, that you should, like, pitch ideas for video
2: games? Yes, uh, I have had a lot of people say to me that they would like to play these games in real life, but it's funny because... I, as a novelist, have no burden. I just don't have the burdens that a video game designer has. You know, I think there's such a long way between, like, an idea and its execution and whether it will be fun. And, you know, in terms of how many people it takes to make a game, like, a, you know, uh, even a relatively small game company or, or it's definitely a triple A company will have like a thousand people working at it, you know. And so it's one thing to say, like, wouldn't it be great to have a book based on, you know, a game based on sort of, you know, uh you know, the Shakespearean era, you know, or something, but it's an entirely other thing to get people to go, you know, make the resources to make that happen, you know.
1: And you really do talk about a time, um, as you allude to, when you could make a game with just a handful of people and it just blows up and becomes amazing in this particular book. um, Sergio tweets, Contra was my first game. I fell in love with video games when I got introduced to Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat to this day at the age of 43, I'm still a gamer. Graphics are amazing. Mind-boggling. Can't wait to see what's next. Um, so I want to get into now the main characters of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and, and their relationship. So so tell us about Sam Mazur and Sadie Green and their relationship. And I understand, actually, that you have a passage that you want to read that mm. I think gets at the essence of of Sam, Um do you want to set it up a little for us or just go right into it? It's up to you.
2: Well, I don't think it needs much setup up because, you know, luckily for our listeners, it's only on page four of the book. So you won't have missed out on much that happened before it. But but basically it's about um, sort of Sam's philosophy about how he kind of communicates with people and how he thinks about himself and the sort of dissonance he has between um The things he wants to say to people and the things he feels and just how to be a person in the universe. So so that's what the passages, the brief passages that I that I wanted to read. Go right ahead. A truly magnificent thing about the way the brain was coded, Sam thought, was that it could say excuse me while meaning screw you. Unless they were unreliable or clearly established as lunatics or scoundrels, characters in novels, movies, and games were meant to be taken at face value, the totality of what they did or what they said. But people, the ordinary, the decent, and basically honest, couldn't get through the day without that one indispensable bit of programming that allowed you to say one thing and mean, feel, even do another.
1: It it really does speak to so much of... Sam's character and the thing. Sam's character and the things that torment him throughout the book, in terms of, I think, so much that gets unstated or repressed, or whether it be, you know, physically about his physical body or about his feelings for Sadie. Do you want to talk a little bit about Sadie Green as well, and
2: who? Yeah, she sure. Is? You know, I and I think you know that passage also gets to who Sadie is. You know, because yeah. really, I think at its heart, you know, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow is about two brilliant people who are, you know, fantastic at making art and somewhat less fantastic at being humans, you know. The challenge <laughs> of being humans and just kind of communicating normally and saying I love you when you mean I love you and acting upon those things are just too difficult for them almost all the time. And that's okay because the sort of highest expression of themselves are the games they make with each other much more so than the personal relationship they have which is which is a disaster, you know. Like a thing is anytime Sadie says I love you Sam answers terribly, you know, and the truth is you can take that to mean literally like that. He is quite bad at loving people, you know, but he also loves her very intensely. But yes, Sadie Green, uh, you know, a lot of Sadie um, probably comes from my experience as a woman working in the arts. And, you know, Sadie is like a little bit older than me, but we're just about the same age. And I think so much of her. Conflicts are the fact that she is the only woman in the room in a lot of game companies, and she uh, feels like she needs to distinguish herself all of the time, you know, and so. Uh, I think she worries, you know, if she ever say had a personal relationship with Sam, that was more than just their professional relationship, that she would be lost in that and people would not respect her and her work. And I think that's so much of what, what drives, what drives Sadie. You know, it's funny because with both the characters, um, it's been great because the book's done really well and people find them to be very frustrating people. And, and, and I think I always want to say about them, like they are, uh, you know, at the end of the book, they're 35. They spend most of the book in their 20s and under. And I just think who among us had ourselves completely figured out in our 20s? Yeah,
1: totally. Well, Sarah writes, I read Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and loved it, especially how the author writes about passionate love between people that is not sexual. I mm. think she really painted an amazing portrait of that. And it's an unusual concept, Um Can you talk a little bit about that? Why you chose to make Sadie and Sam's relationship essentially platonic?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I will have people say that the book is not romantic, but in fact... It is romantic, you know, but it's just that they have a romance of the mind and not the body, you know. And I think, you know, Sam, for a variety of reasons, he has a childhood injury, but I don't really want to reduce it to that trauma. It's also just Sam's essential self is not able to or particularly interested in physical love and sex and even being in his body. And despite all this, he is a very romantic person Um, and he loves Sadie Green more than anyone else in his life. And the highest expression of himself and his capacity for love are the games he makes with Sadie. And, you know, it might be true for Sadie as well, but Sadie's physical and, you know, she needs more than what Sam can give. So, you know, for me, the way I saw it was that it's a friendship and to an extent, it really is a marriage story, but it's also just an impossible puzzle for these characters in which there's not an obvious solution. Yeah. What if the most important, and I guess by that, I, what if the most important, by which I mean defining person in your life, is not your spouse or your child? What if it really was your colleague and your friend?
1: Yeah, and of course, while I was reading this, I couldn't help but thinking the whole time if there were real-life models in your life or that that are Sadie and Sam's relationship,
2: Gabrielle. Well, uh, you know... When you write a book, the, maybe the first book you write, everything can be kind of just you. But then if you write more than one, you have to start writing people that aren't you. And I think what I've come to realize over the years is that, you know, I am at the center of every novel in a certain way. But every character I write is some distance from me, you know, but I have to understand myself at the center of. Um, my my prejudices and my privileges before I can kind of begin to write anybody. But that said, you know, yeah, there, there are things that are in Sam and Sadie's relationship that come from like my life and experiences. You know, I have a partner that I've worked on, you know, in film and theater for many, many years. And, you know, so a lot of the things about collaboration come from that. And And, and I will say that You know, it's funny. I started thinking I wanted to write a love story that wasn't a physical love story maybe five years ago. Um, So when you have a book out... Your publisher will want you to write personal essays to promote the book. And I hate doing it because I think the less you know about me as a person, the better off you're going to be when you come to the book as a reader. And that's just something I feel. It's why I'm not online that much. And I'm, you know, you know, you don't there isn't much about me out there. But that said, I agreed to write a personal essay. So I ended up writing a column for Modern Love in The New York Times. And the piece was about how my partner and I had been together at that point 25 years and never married. Um, And, you know, what was marriage, if not that, but unfortunately the New York times gave the piece, the title, the secret to marriage is never getting married. Now, if you go and have a piece that you, where you claim to have the secret to anything, people will instantly hate you as you know. (laughs) And so there was a lot of commentary um, very quickly about this piece and, um, although I should say as an aside, it's really cool. You can go listen to one of my heroes, Sandra O, oh, read this piece if you ever feel oh, like it. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, because they do like their Modern Love podcast out of maybe WGBH or somewhere. But so that was a very cool thing that happened because of it. But, you know, immediately the comments were very negative toward me. And Mm. they, they said things like, Gabrielle Zevin cannot understand marriage because she doesn't have children. And Gabrielle Zevin cannot understand love and all of these things, which were not part of the piece, but people felt the need to say. And it was at that point that I began to think. You know, um, you know these people really knew very, not, very little about me. They didn't know if I didn't have children and that was a great hardship in my life. They can't know any of the reasons. But in the yeah. end, what is certain is that the only life I have is the one that I am living and any love that came to me in that life, I am grateful for, you know, and that we can't kind of control that we will all have love in the way that, you know, novels and movies tell us to expect it. And so I wanted to write a story about that because I think there are a lot of people like me... Um, who are experiencing all kinds of love and uh, maybe they're not the ones you expect, but they are still, I, at least I feel, you know, such gratitude for the love that I have in my life.
1: Oh, Gabrielle Zevin, we're talking with her about her new book tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And we're talking about, Love and and friendship and collaborating with others and the kind of intimacy that 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 creates. Um, curious if the characters and their relationship to each other also resonated with you. Uh, we got this comment from Amy, who writes: "I just finished reading this incredible story. It's a Japanese-Jewish love story, and it mirrors many of my own struggles as a single mother in the late '90s." With my own Japanese Jewish toddler. Thank you for sharing this with us. I'm gifting it to my daughter's fiance, a total gamer, to help him better understand our family. So I think uh Amy is referencing another character that we haven't talked about yet. Marks, mm-hmm. who's biracial, right? And yes. half Japanese. And then um Sam is actually half Korean, half half Jewish, and and Sadie's Jewish, right? So um I don't know if you have a reaction to what Amy said, but I also have a question about what you were saying about maybe revealing a little bit more of yourself or your actual life in this book than you have in other books.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think when I started out, this is my 10th novel, I definitely saw fiction as a mask I could wear. And I didn't want anybody to mistake anybody in these books for me in any way. And over the years, I stopped feeling that way. I let the mask slip and, you know, le- you know landing here, which is the probably closest set of characters to me that I've ever written. I am like Sam, um, half Jewish and half Korean. And I think, you know, and I grew up in a town that I looked it up was 66% Jewish, you know? And so there were ways in which, um, though, you know, I look visibly foreign to most people. I know this because I'm often asked if I speak English um, <laughs> and this kind of thing. Not as much now, but <clears throat> you know, I think more more of a thing. you know, so I don't know if I read like Asian, but I read like not from here, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing wherever I go. Um and so a lot of this the parts of Sam in the book that are about kind of the half Asian, half jewish experience in america come from my own you know sam describes going to koreatown in los angeles for the first time and just how how much how many korean things signs shops foods and people are everywhere and how if he had gone how it kind of made him rethink who he was. It present like that it, there was a possibility to position himself at the center of a narrative. And I had that same experience as Sam, except it happened to me when I was quite a bit older. Like the first time I went to um, Japan, uh, I just remember thinking I would have been an entirely different person if I had had kind of uh, Asian people uh, If I had felt that being Asian was something primary about myself, as opposed to something I pushed to the side, pushed to the periphery. And I think it's funny being the age that I am. I don't know that people understand um, the extent to which, you know, people of my age and of my generation were kind of pushed to assimilate as much as possible to blend in, you know. And and I think it's much less so today, you know. So in that sense, I'm quite grateful to have lived longer, to f- to feel differently about myself and to experience myself differently. But I had never really put a character like me um, at the center of a narrative until this book, you know.
1: I, I love that you say that because I really honed in on that moment as well when Sam is experiencing Koreatown. And I thought, wow, this is something that only a Korean American or someone with a Mm bicultural identity could could write. uh, you know, you. Well, I about- had
2: that moment <laughs> in my life. I had never. <laughs> right, um, right. So when I moved to Los Angeles, it was the second time I lived in Los Angeles about a decade ago. I mean, I had never. The first time I lived there, I never went to Koreatown, which is crazy because what people don't understand is how enormous Koreatown is. How it's just like this huge, like almost country in the center of the city. And like I knew of, you know, like the kind of much smaller Chinatowns of New York. Or the, there's a Korean restaurant row that's in New York City, that kind of thing. But when I went to Koreatown in LA. Um, and it was funny because it was the summer of like Gangnam style and all that. So there were <laughs> like big yes. posters of him everywhere. Right, and, all right. that. and I was just I was like, whoa, I could have been a whole different person if I had lived in Koreatown when I was a little kid. Like, I don't know. I don't know what I would have written and wrote and who I would have been. I think we take our identity, especially if you're biracial. No, I would say as a biracial person, it is difficult to underestimate the way in which your identity kind of like slightly shifts all of the time, you know, and that it isn't a given both in terms of and and like Celeste Ng writes about this as well in her books. It isn't a given um, that people will always see the same person when they look at you. And so that's one thing. But so you don't know how you're going to be seen or how someone will experience you. Yes. And also the fact that your identity can lightly shift depending on where you are at any given point in time.
1: Yeah, the environment that you're in. Such a similar experience for me when I moved here from Newfoundland. And all of a sudden, I was like, oh, my God, there are more than 10 Korean people in any given (laughs) place. Um, Yeah, I just want to read a little of what you write, because it's just so lovely about Sam. In K-Town, he felt more Korean than he ever had before. Or to a finer point on it, he felt more aware of the fact that he was a Korean, that that was not necessarily a negative or even a neutral fact about him. (laughs) So you really uh, answered my question there with regard to, you know, whether or not that was, in fact, your own experience. So now that you've done it, written a book that is closer to your own life than others that you've written before,
2: how has that felt? Uh, Well, you know, it's funny, I don't know that I was ready to kind of grapple with my identity until I was older. You know, it's funny, this is so much a book that's about being young. It's a book about people in their twenties. And I think while I was in my twenties, I was always writing about people older than myself. You know, that was what I was drawn to. Like, like a lot of my, you know, adult novels are about like middle-aged malaise, you know, (laughs) (laughs) that kind of thing. And so I don't think I was somebody who was naturally good at being a young person. um, And I don't think I under really, really understood youth until I was just past it. And I think it's the same thing with writing about um, being Asian and being Asian and Jewish. You know, I think I worried much more about, um, you know, how people would take that person? Like, could they relate to that person? Because my experience in life had been that most people do not actually relate to me that much. You know? <laughs> and, yeah. so, and so it was interesting to feel like the confidence to want to take that on. I will say the thing that happened for me, though, was kind of the pandemic, you know, and just feeling very alone in my process, um, more alone than I had felt in some time.
1: Hmm. Well, again, we're talking with Gabrielle Zevin, and you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. If you want to ask Gabrielle something, share your thoughts on tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, or on anything about gaming or relationships with people that we collaborate with. Stay with us for more of Forum. After the break, I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. We're talking with writer Gabrielle Zevin about her latest novel, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. Her other novels include Young Jane Young, The Hole We're In, and The Storied Life of A.J. Thicke,ry, which has been made into a film. You, our listeners, are joining the conversation with your questions and comments. And let me go to Daniel in San Francisco next. Hi, Daniel, you're on.
3: Hey there, ladies. Hey, I was wondering if anybody ever asked you if you speak Yiddish. <laughs> They ask you if you speak Korean, right?
2: Probably not.
3: Uh, (laughs) Gabrielle. Um.
2: Um, no, I do not speak Yiddish except what I've picked up over the years as uh, you know a person of Jewish descent. Um, but I, I will say one of my favorite games to play is the game of learning languages, you know. And so I'm not really fluent in anything, but I'm always picking up little bits of you know many languages. Like right now, I'm preparing to go on book tour to Germany, um, which is a great opportunity to learn a little bit of German before before I go, you know. And I just feel like uh, you know, for me. Because so much of my life is words, uh, you know, in terms of writing books, I think what learning languages does is it kind of brings me to a place where language is more like when I was a child where I can like play. And I took on just before I started writing this book, learning Japanese, and it really kind of opened up uh, a lot of parts of my brain into I think I think it improved my work to do so to have some part of my my work devoted to uh, thinking about language that wasn't actually productive in an obvious way, you know.
1: Well, listener Sammy writes, I was a lonely kid in the 80s. My school bus got me to school really early, and I didn't like the crowded gym where everyone was yelling and playing dodgeball. (laughs) So I went to the science room that had computers in it, and the teacher let me play Oregon Trail, and then some very basic game where you had to figure out what food imaginary animals would eat (laughs) to keep them alive. (laughs) My father was also a programmer and helped me design little games to figure out $1 words and things like that. These early computer games helped me connect with other kids at a time when being good at sports was how most kids connected. That reminds me a little bit about what you said at the top of the show, Gabrielle, about how um, as a solo kid, like these games gave you gave you company, gave you somebody to play with.
2: Yeah. And, and I think, again... So there are way, there are games we can play al- alone and then there are the games we play together and with other people and I think people sometimes think of gamers as being loners, but in fact, a lot of them are parts of communities. I was doing an interview in the UK, and I guess a big news story in the UK a couple of years ago had been this this kid who was, I believe, quadriplegic, and his parents kept telling him to stop playing video games and come down from his room. And then, you know, he died. Uh, But when they went to his funeral, all the gamers came, and they had no idea that this kid had had so many friends, you know. And so I think that really... If you think about it, it's the opposite. He wasn't alone all the time. He actually was among people. And especially as we kind of move into thinking about the metaverse and what that's going to mean, I find some of these examples hopeful, you know? Yeah, totally.
1: Um, and then we have another comment here from listener Elliot, who writes, I'm a software engineer, and I appreciated how you talked about the relationship between a game and its engine. I mm. liked that the characters wrestled with the immense effort of creating an engine from scratch against risking losing a unique game ambiance when using the simulated <laughs> physics from a generic game engine. In the video games I most like to play, the physics and movements in a video game aren't typically the most realistic, and I think that adds lots of character and enjoyment to those games. It's interesting that Elliot brings up um, uh, brings up that relationship because it also. Kind of mirrors a, a power dynamic <laughs> of another relationship that Sadie has in, uh, in tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. But but yeah, wondering what your thoughts are on Elliot's comment about about talking about that relationship and why it was important to do that for you.
2: Well, it's interesting. The Dove character is the one who you know is in possession of the engine that Sadie and Sam first use, And he has a lot of the same feelings that your listener has. You know, I think the fear that if people kind of share engines, you know, that games kind of become very much the same, you know, and they look the same and their presumptive physics are the same and and that kind of thing. And so, uh, you know, I think it's worrisome, you know, because really what an engine is, 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 a, is, it is a series of shortcuts, you know, if you want to think about it, you know, in layman's terms, you know, and sometimes what those shortcuts do is they make things less original, you know? And so I think that is a fear, but it also, you know, shortcuts can also allow people to be creative in other ways is the, is the positive thing about it. But for me, I was attracted to writing about engines because I had never seen anything about engines in a book before, you know, and I thought to myself, the person who controls the engine is the person with the most power, um, and that is basically like inserting a small god <laughs> into your into your story. And I wanted to write about that. The person with you know Promethean powers um, seemed to me very appealing to write about. And yes, it does plug into a whole storyline about uh, influence and about uh, and about power, really.
1: Well, Wren writes. I just tried the Emily Blaster game after you mentioned it, and I could not stop laughing. It's so funny. So I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of funny you're like shooting poetry right
2: (laughs) right i liked the subversiveness of shooting poetry you know i'm i hate shooting at things and you know a huge percentage of games are shooters you know so the idea of just shooting little bits of 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 poetry seemed to me kind of hilarious, you know. <laughs> and then it's like if you shoot the, the if you play Emily Blaster and you shoot the poem in the wrong order, what comes up is this weird garbled poem that you have made. This like monstrosity of Emily Dickinson yes. which is also I think kind of humorous. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, um I wanted to ask you about Setting this in L.A., uh, so mm. much of the novel, I mean, not, not entirely, but so much of the novel takes place in L.A., where you've lived for the last 10 years or so, and where your characters Sadie and Sam are from. Sam moves between his grandparents' house in Echo Park and their pizza parlor in Koreatown with a hilarious name, but one that I can totally picture in Koreatown. <laughs> um, and Sadie lives in the flats of Beverly Hills. Why was L.A. such a fitting backdrop for a story like this?
2: You know, I think LA is a city that has a bad rap because it is very difficult to figure out. It's somewhat difficult to navigate. There's so much traffic, you know, and it just, if you live in one part of LA, like Sam does, you know, Echo Park in the, you know, uh, 80s and you live in a different part like Sadie does, the flats of Beverly Hills, you're going to be living a different life entirely. And I think it's something people don't understand about LA, how much you can feel, you can just be an entirely different person living an entirely different life when you're only like, say, three miles apart, You know, (laughs) and so that's something that really intrigues me about L.A. And also so often um, when I read L.A. stories, they're often about people in Hollywood. I was just interested to talk about uh, the L.A. I knew that has a lot of creative people in it, but they're not all movie stars, you know.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And the landmarks that you point out are really the kind of landmarks that you wouldn't see in like a, a mainstream travel book or something. It's something you'd probably find in like Atlas Obscura or something. The, the <laughs> ballerina clown in Venice and the uh, happy foot, sad foot Well, sign. I once
2: almost bought an apartment in the the Clown Arena building in Venice. Uh, I, I did not end up buying the apartment because, in fact, the difficulty of that building, no offense to anyone who lives there, is that if you decide to put a 30-foot ballerina on one wall, the windows are going to be really small and the apartment is going to end up somewhat dark. So even though I kind of loved the aesthetics of that, I couldn't quite make peace with uh, with that. So in any case, what ended up happening was I bought my first home across town on the street where the happy foot, sad foot sign used to be. <laughs>
1: Oh, my God. So did that inspire, I have to ask, Sam's condition? Because it seems so symbolic of it. No, I mean, it didn't. Was
2: it was more it. just something I thought <laughs> of when I got – I wrote the book largely in sequence, um, and I always knew I wanted to put the happy foot, sad foot sign in something. It now no longer stands. L.A. is not a sentimental city, which is something I also uh, mm. can – it. <sighs> Have made peace with and can admire, and it was, of course, just a spinning sign for a podiatrist. The podiatrist <laughs> still exists, and he has an Instagram. I know because he recently followed me on Instagram. Oh so God. I'm like, <laughs> I think he made the Happy Foot, Sad Foot Doctor may have read the book, which is, of course, you know, very exciting for me. Um, but yeah, I, I, the whole book, though, it takes place largely in Los Angeles and also in Cambridge, Massachusetts, yes. and these are places that I've lived, and um, a little bit in New York City, a little bit in San Francisco, a little bit in Japan, places. I've lived, worked, or what, what have you. And I wrote, uh, you know, I was researching the book since 2017, but I wrote the bulk of it during the pandemic. And what I can feel in the book is this almost like sensual description of places, because what it feels like to me is this palpable longing for travel and cities when we could not travel or go to cities, you know?
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, let me go to Sapphire in Canada. Hi, Sapphire. Join us. You're on.
0: Hi, um, so I just wanted to really appreciate um, Gabrielle for writing this
2: uh, book um, from the perspective. So, you know, to have a look like it really allows us to um, have a look at the gamers, like what it's like to be a gamer. And I'm really uh, appreciative of her, you know, putting this concept out there and just providing us with this insight that you know they're just not toxic people and they're just really nice people and humans as well and um i also had a question i wanted to know what um she thinks about why sadie keeps going back to dole like what um why do you think that is <laughs> sapphire thanks <laughs> I mean, yes, it was important to me to write a book about video games that wasn't just like like some angry, you know, misogynist like screaming over a headset. You know, I think we think of like the capital G gamer um, and that, uh, you know, evokes a certain kind of person. But in fact, you know, I think over 50 percent of the people who game are women. And, you know, there are all kinds of games that a person might play. And I wanted to write about that. You know, I think sometimes I'll have somebody say to me, oh, I'm not a gamer. And then I will think, yes, but do you play Wordle? Or are you on Instagram collecting likes? Then you are actually some kind of gamer, you know. Um, in terms of why Sadie keeps going back to Dove, you know, I think it is the uh, that part of the story to me is about just how difficult it is to escape um. A powerful mentor in your life. So the thing about Dove is he is a terrible boyfriend um, and a somewhat good teacher. And I think these two things balance to make it very difficult for her to leave. You know, I think I wanted to write about the ways in which um certain kinds of uh certain kinds of relationships can have can seem like they are all negative but can have some positive things in them as well and I think for Sadie she often thinks that it you know it's enormously difficult for her to leave. Dove uh, because she feels all this mix of like, I hate him. I'm grateful to him. He is important in my career. And and I wanted to write about that. The other thing is, you know, sometimes I'll have a, a younger reader than myself say like, why isn't Dove punished at the end of the book? And I'll say, well, because, you know, it's not 2017 yet. Me Too hasn't happened, you know? Mm, yeah. <laughs> and so like, you know, I was interested in writing about that kind of person who was like perfectly fine up till about 2017, you know, and, and then like, Obviously, it's more challenging to be Dove uh, probably now than it was at any point in the story as it exists.
1: That's such a good point. There are moments like that in the book where you're thinking, wow, this is so inappropriate and so (laughs) terrible. But then you're like, I'm looking at this probably with a 2022 or 2023 (laughs) lens. And, you know, how would these characters living in this moment have thought about this? And you really did keep it there. We're talking with Gabrielle Zevin about tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina mean Kim. All right, let me go to Petra in Oakland. Hi, Petra, you're on.
3: Hi. Um, I was wondering, I have stopped playing video games at Tetris in the 80s and my like Game boy. And I'm in my 50s and just opened my eyes to a whole new world of, wow, there are actually humans behind this. I always thought it was like very impersonal, like robot-like. So I had no interest. And now I'm getting into this book and I'm like, well, maybe I missed a whole lot of things. Where would you
1: suggest I get started? Oh, you want to get back into video games, Petra? Is that what you're saying? Now well, that you have realized just how yeah. deep they well, are.
3: Actually, <laughs> actually, I want to get started. I mean, I stopped at Tetris. You know, that's Right. Game Boy. Yeah, Tetris is an
1: awesome
2: game, I have to say, though. So not,
1: not a bad one to have been the one that you played.
2: Yeah, and in fact, Tetris is the root of so many games that came after Tetris. Like the, any of the kind of games you see, like Candy Crush, they're all sort of Tetris-based games, and it becomes like a huge, uh, I think, one of the most seminal games that was ever made. So it's not like a bad place to start. But I think one of the things people don't realize about video games is that there are so many different kinds of video games and video game experiences you might play. Maybe you want to play something like Tetris that's a Blocks game, but maybe you want to build a small city, you know, maybe you want to run a diner, maybe you want to like fight off, uh, you know, zombies in some kind of apocalyptic world. There are games that are like novels, there are games that are just Angry Birds, you know, (laughs) and so it's almost impossible to know where to start. And I find it, unless I know a lot about a person, I really can't tell them where to begin. But I will say, my parents, after they read my book, my dad was very against my whole childhood uh, letting me have a Nintendo console. But upon reading my book, my parents, who are 72, um bought their first nintendo and they now play together every single day their game of choice is is mario party um (laughs) it's kind of like a children's board game part sesame street and they're very competitive um my dad is he doesn't think he's a bad sport but he often as an ex-programmer will blame the code when he loses you know but but i think it's so great and it's almost very like romantic like they do a lot of things together and this is now one more just way they can i think um you know, really, you know, be just best friends like they've always been so
1: that's so cute yeah and see how other people play games can be really revealing of who they are
2: (laughs) i think so people are like they i don't think you necessarily reveal your true self but you certainly reveal a different self you know when you are playing like i don't like to lose but i (laughs) and i know where i come by it you know i come by it from my dad you know so i (laughs) i can't help it it's baked into me you know but 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 basically yeah i do think people are like it's interesting it is a it is an intimate act to play with someone, you know, to really let them, let them, let let people see you in that way.
1: Totally. Well, Yvonne writes, "I was addicted to the original Might and Magic on my old Mac. Took several mm. discs to load with no hard drive. I still have the book of maps and can remember the awesome feeling when I finally found a certain key or won an important battle. No game before or since has captured me like M M&M. and M." So we just have a couple of minutes left and I haven't asked you yet about the title and about your point that um, while it's one of the bleakest speeches in all of Shakespeare, as you say, from Macbeth, that to one of the characters, it is hopeful tomorrow and mm-hmm. tomorrow and tomorrow that, that it describes the essence of a video game, immortality, right? The, the chance for always having extra lives or the chance to restart the game over and over again until until you win the game. And of course, I have to
2: ask you, is writing novels a
1: little bit like that for you?
2: It's completely like that. You know, I think, um, you know, and, and I'll, I'll also say I think life is like that, too, that life is more like a video game than one that it then it appears at first blush. But the thing I love about novel writing is that. Every day when I wake up fresh, you know, it's a blank screen and I can go over the work of the day before and I have some chance to achieve um, what I'll call perfection, but can mean lots of different things. And I think the more I wrote the book, the more I did realize that, you know, life had a resemblance to that, that, you know, as long as you are still alive, you can, you know, you have some chance to, to improve and to improve, be more loving, improve your relationships and be a better person in, in this world.
1: And tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow will have a rebirth as a film, as
2: I understand it. It will. So it's actually, uh, you know, I think maybe it's more naturalist television, but we are working really hard to make it into a movie that will feel like it has all of the things in it um, from oh. from the book. You know, I think uh, it's funny. I, I still love going to the movies myself. I love the feeling of just being absorbed in a narrative for like two hours and just seeing somebody's whole life in that period of time. And, you know, I think if we can capture some of that, you know, it could be it could be a good movie.
1: Well, that's pretty amazing. Cannot wait for that. Gabrielle Zevin, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you again for having me. This has been great. And again, Gabrielle Zevin is the author of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, a very popular book, obviously, among our listeners. Forum is produced, and this segment was produced by Susie Britton. Forum is also produced by Caroline Smith and Grace Wan. Marlena Jackson-Rotondo is our engagement producer. Susan Davis is our senior producer. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Christopher Beale, Brendan Willard, and Jim Bennett. Our interns are Lulu Ralda and Jericho Reininger. Our vice president of news is Ethan Tobin-Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Mina Kim. Have a great weekend.
3: Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.